Welcome to Bitcoin Sermons, the podcast that preaches how Bitcoin is connected to the coming of Jesus. It's a fascinating topic, and I think it's like the elephant in the room that not many are really talking about, even though it's so obvious. Well, whether you're a Bitcoiner or a Christian or both, this podcast has something for you. Hello and welcome to this episode. I hope you all had a great week. And uh, this past week, it was interesting that, uh, well, um, a couple of things. People have been talking about this past week how plebs are buying up as much Bitcoin as miners are producing through the block reward. And that's an interesting statistic and kind of goes in the direction of what I want to talk to you about today. So we'll get into that a little bit later. This week also a video came out, or at least I saw it this week, summarizing a report that came out about the Global Digital Compact. And uh, I want to talk a little bit about that and just kind of summarize the points. Another uh, thing that happened in the news uh, this past week was that France has fallen, as they are saying, and uh, basically riots are going crazy there, and uh, the government has basically lost control. They're talking about bringing in the military. And this is particularly significant because of the history of France, what it stands for, the French Revolution, and how that all ties into sort of the modern approach to the Western world. The Statue of Liberty, as you might know, is a gift to the United States from France. And the values, the Western values that people talk about are or originate from France. So it's very significant that France has, in a sense, lost the battle on their own territory. So let's start off with just a summary of this video from CoinBrew. And you can find the link to that on my Noster account. Just search for Bitcoin Sermons and you'll find that. And I thought it was nice that he was talking about a lot of the same issues that I have covered in recent episodes. And it's just uh, nice to see others recognizing many of the same things. He, uh, for example, recognized and said that governments are getting their orders. He's speaking about Western governments getting their orders from international organizations and lobbyists and, you know, other places than from the people. So democratic countries are supposed to basically have the people in charge of directing the government, but this is no longer happening. Instead, the governments are taking their orders from elsewhere. This basically shows that the world is no longer free, not even in the free countries. And unfortunately, many people do not really recognize or believe or accept that yet. But it's really important to see that in order to recognize the urgency of doing something about it. In particular, he also recognized that the UN is forcing the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, through the ESG initiative. And this is also what I spoke about 
in regards to how the money printer is taking the wealth from the people and pouring it into businesses that are in alignment with ESG. And that's how the UN implements its policies and ignores the opinion of the population, even in democratic countries. So it was just nice to see how others are recognizing that. And uh, I think more people need to really come to grips with that and recognize the importance of fighting against it with hard currency that cannot be debased, namely with Bitcoin. And I'll just say here, CoinBaru is not a Bitcoin-only channel, but when he does his reports, he seems to do a really good job of them. So I don't particularly recommend his channel for general viewing, but I think he does a good job summarizing these kinds of reports. Now, he explained that the COVID passport, that that will become the global digital ID. Now, on this topic, I think it's interesting how technologies like Noster have allowed individuals to take control of their own identity and their own self-brand, so to speak. But the danger that's coming up with the global digital ID is sort of the other side of the coin, which is that if a person is linked to a well-known digital ID, then governments will have the ability to censor and limit services to those individuals. So anonymity, which Noster does allow, is important. And that's what will be missing from the CBDC or whatever they are going to call the monetary system that emerges, the digital replacement to the fiat monetary system, whatever the governments come up with. They might not call it a CBDC because of the negative connotations, but, you know, in essence, that's what it is. And it may present itself as being anonymous and privacy-preserving to the user in the sense that other users will not be able to learn information about you, or perhaps businesses won't be able to learn information about you as a customer. But under the hood, behind the scenes, in the systems of the banks, the central banks and whatnot, they will have the tracking ability to know exactly who you are and what purchases you're making. And it's just like the credit system today that when you go to make a purchase, the person at the cash register runs your ID through the system and it checks your credit report and makes a decision as to whether or not you are allowed to make the purchase. Sometimes even a cash purchase is not allowed simply because Maybe the amount is above a threshold and they check your ID, find that your credit score is not where it should be or for whatever reason, unstated reason, simply the transaction is denied. And that happens today, even with cash transactions that are above certain thresholds. So this is, of course, still going to be possible with digital currencies, government digital currencies, CBDCs, um, and even stronger. If it's being done today with, you know, the three major credit 
scoring agencies, then of course it's going to be done in the future with a system that is completely digital. So these are real concerns that we've talked about in previous episodes that tie into the crisis regarding the mark of the beast that's described in the book of Revelation. So listen to my other episodes about that. But in this episode, we're going to talk more about God's plan for defeating the mark of the beast system. But uh, before we leave this coin brew report, just a couple of more remarks on that. I thought it was very interesting that he quoted them as saying, well, first of all, they profess to be working toward an open, secure, and free digital future. And yet, in the same breath, they say that censorship by some countries isn't enough to ensure that open, secure, and free digital future. (laughs) In other words, they see censorship as facilitating the open and free digital world. So it's really just important to note, I think, how they see open and free in contrast to what really is open and free. They don't mean freedom of speech. They mean a world free from dissenting views, free from what they deem as misinformation. And the way that they envision getting there is by clamping down more online and in the real world. And that's what I think is particularly concerning, is because the digital ID seeks to establish that link between the person in the real world and the person online, and it removes the anonymity. So if, for example, your online presence supports views that are contrary to the opinions of the state, or in other words, you simply exercise free speech online, and that identity is linked to your real-world identity, then suddenly, just for expressing your views online, it will be possible to deny you purchases of, you name it, your daily bread, for example. So that's a very dangerous system that is in the works, that is planned, that this report is about, which is the Global Digital Compact. He remarked that they are interested in protecting the infrastructure, which they mean the internet, and that they're worried about a split in the internet with respect to censorship of East versus West, different forms of censorship. And I suspect that that's going in the direction of using AI globally rather than allowing individual nations to determine their own strategies for censorship or controlling what they deem as hate speech. So in that context, I guess it's worth mentioning that right around now, there is an effort to sort of bring AI, open source AI, to everybody. And this will likely involve using Lightning as a means of paying through the APIs for the AI services, which are understandably costly because of the infrastructure required for them to make it work. So that's an interesting development that's been on the radar as well this past week. In this report, Guy mentioned 
that the strategy of the UN involves money, money, and more money. And this goes back to how they control the world through the money, as I explained in previous episodes. They print the money, which of course would cause inflation, and then they tighten the controls on inflation. And so on the one hand, everyone's money is devalued, so the money is taken out of the pockets of the citizens of the world. And then on the other hand, that money is poured back into organizations that do their will, companies that do their will, and the federal interest rates are tightened in order to prevent that inflation from getting out of control. And the end result is that the individual then suffers unless he is benefiting directly or indirectly through some company that's aligned with the UN initiatives. In other words, eventually the whole world is brought into slavery to the United Nations by this mechanism. And that's how they control the world. So the only alternative is Bitcoin, because that's a money that can't be inflated. And he noted that the UN does recognize and fears this alternative. His only remark that I really didn't agree with was that he said UN initiatives never really came to pass in the past. But I would argue that they really have been succeeding in what they have been attempting, at least on some of the important things like redistribution of wealth. This was talked about at the UN by Pope Francis, and we see how it's literally being done and I suspect there will be more of that. So opt out of this coming global digital compact, which is going to make the health passport worldwide, incorporate the digital ID, and tie that into your financial access to the existing banking system. That is the system that will allow, in the words of Revelation, will allow the beast to demand worship or obedience on pain of death. And that's the same scenario that took place long earlier in the experience of Daniel's three friends when they were required to bow down to the golden statue, a symbol for the monetary system, on pain of death. And today, what I want to show you is another Bible story, even earlier, which also illustrates this worship of the golden image and gets a little more into some of the good properties of Bitcoin and how it agrees with God's design as he explains it in the Bible. So I'm talking about the story of the golden calf. And this story is found in the book of Exodus in chapter 32. And there are some really deep, deep lessons in this chapter. And I don't think we're going to get into all of them, but I do want to at least read the basic story here. So just to kind of give a quick background, they had just come out of bondage. They had just come out of Egypt. They were on their way to the promised land. So they were in this transition period in the wilderness. And Moses had just gone into the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments from the Lord in the mountain. And meanwhile, the children of Israel in the camp had grown impatient and decided to make 
a golden calf to be their god and to throw a party around that. And on that very day, Moses and Joshua came down the mountain, saw what the children of Israel had done, broke the two tables of the law that they had just received from the hand of God, and proceeded to deal with the situation of Israel's rebellion. So starting with Exodus chapter 32, verse 25, it says, And when Moses saw that the people were naked, for Aaron had made them naked unto their shame among their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together unto him. And he said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Put every man his sword by his side, and go in and out from gate to gate throughout the camp, and slay every man his brother, and every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. And the children of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and there fell of the people that day about three thousand men. So I want to stop there and kind of put this in perspective, compare this to how the situation of the world is today. Israel, in this context, could be compared to the world, okay? Something was happening in the spiritual sense. Moses had gone up into the mountain, but during that time, the people down below, all the different tribes of Israel, they were impatient and they rebelled against God and made a false god, this golden calf. And it's golden, which again, like the statue of Nebuchadnezzar, signifies money. And so when we talk about what the world is doing today, the world in the secular sense, the governments of the world, what they're doing today is they are banding together at the United Nations level to make a monetary system that everyone must bow down to, that everyone must accept and be bound by. And that's the golden calf in this comparison. Now, what I want to point out, what I think is very interesting in this story is that the first thing Moses did in order to rectify the situation is he called for those who were on the Lord's side. And he said, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together. Now, if we're talking about a financial system and we're talking about coming to the Lord's side, then that would be comparable to those who come over to the Bitcoin standard, who stand on the side of the Lord, who stand with the monetary system that is in harmony with his will and not with the system of the world that's represented by the golden calf, which is a false god. It's a system of false money based on basically lies, based on debt, based on having value that is not really there, based on the existence of money that is not really there, just like a false god that cannot actually do anything. It's just an inanimate object. And so, in that sense, the Levites were the early adopters, you could say. They were the ones that, when Moses called, even without having to be convinced, they were ready immediately to come over to the Lord's side. Or you could say they were already on the Lord's side, and they just gathered to Moses. It says, Moses called, who is on the Lord's side? In other words, who is already on the Lord's side? let him come unto me. So this speaks of then in this comparison, 
of the Levites as being the early adopters to Bitcoin. And so I think that's very significant in what comes next. Now, the story goes on and it says, this is continuing with verse 29, for Moses had said, consecrate yourselves today to the Lord, even every man upon his son and upon his brother, that he may bestow upon you a blessing this day. So interestingly, on this very day that the Levites, being on the side of God, had gone through the camp and slain those who had rebelled against God. And as we make the application to today, we're not talking about physical slaying. We're talking about financial slaying, okay? But on this very day, it says that Moses had them consecrate themselves to the Lord so that a blessing could be bestowed upon them. And it came to pass on the morrow that Moses said unto the people, Ye have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up unto the Lord. Peradventure I shall make an atonement for your sin. And so now then we find one of the most beautiful and touching records of human agency with God. It says in verse 31, And Moses returned unto the Lord and said, Oh, this people have sinned a great sin and have made them gods of gold, monetary gods. Yet now, if thou wilt forgive their sin, and if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book which thou hast written. So what we have here is that Moses recognized how serious the sin of the congregation had been. And in all humility, he took it upon himself to ask God for forgiveness for them, humbling himself to the point of being willing to be blotted out of the book of life if their sin could not be forgiven, because he recognized that he was no more deserving of God's forgiveness than they were. And now God's response to Moses when he made this intercession was very interesting. He basically spoke words of pure justice. And the Lord said unto Moses, Whoever hath sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. And basically what happened after this is that Moses was instructed to bring other tables of stone, and the Lord wrote the Ten Commandments on them again. And this time he also gave Moses the plans for building the sanctuary, which was the center of worship where the Levites worked. They were the ones who would build up and take down the sanctuary. And in this sanctuary, the priests would minister and intercede between God and the people. And in this way, the sanctuary became the intermediate or intermediary step between God and the children of Israel, much like how Jesus is the mediator between God and man. And of course, all of the sacrifices of the sanctuary system were foreshadowing the sacrifice of Christ, as was this sacrifice that Moses made in offering his own name to be blotted out of the book of life for the sake of the children of Israel. And this sacrifice of Moses and of Jesus, which is symbolized in the sacrifices of the sanctuary system, 
is also all brought together in the book of Revelation. In particular, that's found in chapter 15 of the book of Revelation in verse 3. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. So this reference to the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb refers to their experience, the song of their experience, the experience of interceding, of sacrificing for the sake of others. And so as these things are brought to light in the book of Revelation as well, that shows that these stories, this sacrifice of Moses, this story in Exodus chapter 32, is relevant to the end of time. It's relevant to the things that the book of Revelation is talking about. And so if we say that Bitcoin has something to do with the financial collapse that's described in the book of Revelation and the coming of the kingdom of God, then we can also be sure that this story of the golden calf is also very relevant to the present time that we're living in and to this transition into the kingdom of God. And what I find particularly fascinating here is the fact that it was connected to this experience with the golden calf that the sanctuary itself came into being because the second time Moses went into the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, he also received the plans for the sanctuary as sort of God's way to put a certain isolation between him and the people so that they wouldn't be destroyed immediately by his holiness being in their immediate presence. And this is very much like what happened in the beginning with the Garden of Eden, where God sent Adam and Eve out of the garden in order to basically preserve their life. Because if they had stayed in his presence, direct presence. Because of their sinfulness, they would have been destroyed by his holiness if they remained in his presence. And so the same sort of thing is illustrated here with the whole congregation of the children of Israel, that if God did not institute this sanctuary system, then his presence in the camp would have destroyed the children of Israel because of the sin in their lives. And now, We come to what's really interesting to me that that I just love about Bitcoin, and that's the fact that it has what Bitcoiners often refer to as incentives that are inherent to it and that are contrary to the incentives of the fiat system. So as an example, because fiat money loses value over time, it incentivizes people to spend money quickly. And that causes people to have a much shorter term focus, to think about the here and now and what they can get with their money today, rather than thinking long term and planning for the future and thinking about what good can be accomplished in the future if they would save money. Because In the fiat system, saving money actually is a loss. But with Bitcoin, saving money actually is a way of investing. It actually results in an increase in value 
for a number of reasons, because of the fixed supply, so there's no inflation, and in fact, just because no new money can be created and some money is either held or lost over the course of time, Bitcoin is actually deflationary. And this means that it will, by definition, over the long term, it will increase in value. It'll have its ups and downs, and the exchange houses are not necessarily the arbiter of truth when it comes to what the value of Bitcoin actually is. But in theory, Bitcoin that you hold will over time increase in value. And that has, in general, been proven very well over the course of the past number of years since Bitcoin has existed. It's not like other altcoins which thrive for a moment because they are sort of artificially pumped up and hyped and then they collapse because there's no real user base and no real compelling case to keep them growing. Bitcoin is not like that. Bitcoin is unique in that it has the user base and the essential characteristics that make it secure and enduring over the long run. But what I want to show you here in the context of the sanctuary system is the fact that just as Bitcoin provides good incentives, incentives that help people to develop a better character, a character that is not just looking for instant gratification, but that's looking for long-term well-being, not just for oneself, but also for each other and for the whole ecosystem, for the whole world, in essence. And the way that God expresses that through the sanctuary system is very similar. It has been said that we don't understand the half of the Jewish economy, the ancient Jewish economy. And I think that's really true. But I think we need to understand <laughs> a lot more about it because it really does relate to what we're dealing with in real life today. In the Jewish sanctuary system, when a person would sin, they would be obliged to bring a sacrifice to the sanctuary. And that sacrifice was in the form of an animal or in the form of food. Well, the animal was also food. So the point is that this was the bread and butter, so to speak, of the sanctuary. This is what the priests ate and lived from. And, you know, that was their wealth, their sustenance, was the sacrifices that the people brought. And, of course, these sacrifices represented ultimately Christ's sacrifice. And they were designed in a way in the context of that society, in a way that would incentivize people not to sin. In other words, it would incentivize good behavior. And that's what Bitcoiners say that Bitcoin does, which it does. So, for example, if you were a Jew and you had to bring an animal sacrifice because of some wrongdoing, First of all, that sacrifice was the equivalent of money in those days. Your wealth was in your flocks. Your flocks and herds were your wealth. And we talked about that in the very first episode of this podcast. And I encourage you to listen to that if you haven't heard it already, where we talked about how Bitcoin fulfills what God said he would do to the shepherds and the flocks. And we noted that the flocks and herds were a representation of the wealth 
of the people. And here again, we have this situation where a person must bring a sacrifice, which represents a portion of their wealth. They're bringing something that costs, that has a cost to them. And David even made reference to that when he said, I will not bring a sacrifice to the Lord that does not cost me something. And so when a Jew would bring his animal sacrifice, this represented a cost, a financial penalty, if you will, a fine for bad behavior. And he himself would have to kill the animal and allow the priest to then take the blood and, you know, do all the things that they would do as part of the ceremony and ultimately butcher the animal and uh, prepare parts of it to be eaten and, you know, so forth. And there were different sacrifices for different purposes, and not all of them were a penalty for sin, per se. Some were thank offerings, like just a, a, a gift that was given to the Lord and to the, to the, indirectly to the priests then. There were many different types of sacrifices, and that represents all the different ways that we as people give our wealth or give portions of our wealth to different causes and for different reasons. And sometimes the people themselves would eat of those sacrifices, and a portion or all of the sacrifice, depending on the situation, would go to the priests, and they would eat from that. And so it was a very real part of the economic system of ancient Israel. So by emphasizing that it was an economic activity in ancient Israel to give these sacrifices, I want to show that it relates very much to what we're facing in the world today, where the issues of the day are primarily economic. We're having a crisis between two different economic systems, the economies of the world that are based on debt or sin, if you will. Sin is like debt for which you have to ultimately pay the price in the judgment of God. And on the other side, that's in contrast to the system of the kingdom of heaven, which is represented by Bitcoin, which is not a system of death. It's a system of wealth, just as the kingdom of heaven represents eternal wealth. And so I want to come back to this point about the Levites and how they were separated for the cause of God early on because they stood with the Lord when the rest of the congregation had made the golden calf. And to me, that seems in a lot of ways very much like how Bitcoin early adopters have stood with Bitcoin despite the lack of mainstream acceptance at that point. And on this point of incentives, I think it's worth noting how, in fact, uh, just today, I think it was, I saw an article on Bitcoin magazine titled, Bitcoin is more than money. It's a tool for self-transformation. And this is exactly what the economy of the Jewish sacrificial system was about. It was more than just money. It was more than just wealth. It was more than just a system of sacrifices. It was a tool for developing the people, for improving their character. And that's what Bitcoin does. And so once again, just like how we explained in the first episode, here again, we see that Bitcoin does what God promised. It is a tool that encourages good development of character, which is what 
God promised what he wanted, what he promised to do through his people, through his prophets, through his son, Jesus Christ. It is what God promised to Adam and Eve and the human race to ultimately restore them to a level of character free from sin and that he can welcome them back into his arms and into the kingdom of heaven ultimately without any concern that sin is going to spread through the whole universe and that misery is going to be the order of the day. And so right now on this earth, we have a very unique opportunity to sort of choose between the two systems, between the system of the world, the, 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 the financial system that's based on debt, which is like the system of sin, versus the system of God, which is based on true character, true value, true wealth, true values. And that's represented by Bitcoin. So the choice you make today or in the coming time between Bitcoin and the fiat financial system, whether in its digital form or otherwise, that choice, which is a choice that everyone in the world is going to face, is going to tell whether you're on the side of God or not. And for those who are Christians, I think it's a no-brainer that Bitcoin is the way that agrees with the principles of the Bible and the principles of God. And I can just urge you to accept Bitcoin, adopt Bitcoin, and opt out of the fiat system to every degree possible and ultimately reject the global digital identity and digital currency that goes you know, is all going to be tied together. In that way, you transition into the land of the free and into the, uh, you know, into, into a world where you are sovereign over your own wealth uh, by holding your Bitcoin in self-custody. And you opt out of the system of slavery through which the powers of the world are uh, directing the world's affairs. And to Bitcoiners who are not Christians, I would just say that Part of the development that Bitcoin allows you to make and encourages you to make is thinking long term, thinking beyond this life to the life to come and ultimately making a choice to accept not only Bitcoin as a means to maintain freedom and independence here on earth, but that you would also accept Christ as the only one who can ultimately pay the debt, so to speak, of your past life of sin and provide you with eternal life, which is something that here on earth, even with Bitcoin, you can never obtain. So I think we have time here to go into one more topic that sort of came to my attention this week. And this perhaps ties into the fall of France that we mentioned earlier. Now, if France falling is sort of an omen for the fall of antitypical Babylon, because France represents the, the system of so-called Western values that is ultimately the basis for the framework of the United Nations laws and all the sort of globalist agendas, if the fall of France is an omen for the fall of this system, per se, 
then this this what in the book of Revelation is referred to as Babylon, then it kind of takes our thoughts back to the fall of Babylon itself. Now, the actual fall of Babylon was very interesting. It's a fascinating story. You might be familiar with the story a little bit, how the armies diverted the Euphrates River that ran right through the middle of Babylon. And that's interesting in the sense that a river or current is another symbol for money. It represents the flowing of money. And when you divert a river, when you divert the flow of money away from Babylon, when you divert it away from the fiat system, and when you dry up the channels that flow through the city of Babylon, then that is the secret to conquering Babylon. And the fall of Babylon was accomplished in exactly that way. They diverted the river, and then the army marched right down the riverbed straight into the city. And it so happened that the Babylonians felt so secure that King Belshazzar at the time was throwing a party with all of his noblemen on the very night that the city fell. And the way it happened was very interesting. You know the story of the handwriting on the wall. And there are amazing details in this story that are not widely recognized, I would say. For example, you know, we tend to look at the prophets of the Bible in such a way that, oh, you know, they just had a close connection with God that enabled them to know things and, you know, in the case of Daniel, to interpret dreams and interpret the handwriting on the wall. And it's just all kind of mysterious and magical to us in a way. But we forget that they were human beings. And, you know, Daniel was a person and he didn't just have knowledge because of some supernatural special connection to God. He studied, he studied the Bible what they had of the prophetic writings at that time, the books of Moses and the, and things like that. And the handwriting on the wall, um, scholars have discovered that, you know, many, many tekel uparsin are the words, that these words are actually monetary references. They refer to different denominations of coins that were in use at the time in Babylon. And if you add up those four coins, the, their monetary value, you come out to a value of 2,520. And this is something that pretty much everyone could recognize or could calculate. But Daniel, in particular, was the only one who understood what it signified. And that has a special reason. And that's because he was a student of the Bible. And he understood the meaning of the symbols of the sanctuary. And this takes us back to the story of Moses and the wilderness tabernacle, which was made according to the pattern that he received in the mountain after the children of Israel had made the golden calf. And what we find here is very fascinating. It's the, the story comes in the book of Numbers in chapter 7. And it talks about how when they set up the tabernacle to begin the sanctuary services, 
for the first time that they dedicated the tabernacle with special offerings and one prince from each of the 12 tribes, so 12 princes in total, each brought an offering to the dedication of the sanctuary um, as a gift to the Lord for the sanctuary, for its operation. And all 12 gave the same gift. And I'll just read, starting with verse 12. Eh, no, I'll start with verse 10. Um, and I'll just read what the first prince gave, but all 12 gave the same gift. Okay, it says, And the princes offered for dedicating of the altar in the day that it was anointed. Even the princes offered their offering before the altar. So this was an offering particularly for the altar, which means that these things that they were offering for the dedication were to be used in the ministry that pertained to the altar. And the altar, of course, is where the animal, the sacrifices, were burnt. And so the meat that was prepared from the animals that were sacrificed was using these instruments that were given for the dedication of the altar. Therefore, they were given for the dedication of the altar in particular. And now, uh, verse 11, And he, the Lord said unto Moses, They shall offer their offering each prince on his day for the dedicating of the altar. And he that offered his offering the first day was Naashan, the son of Amenadab of the tribe of Judah. And his offering was one silver charger. The weight thereof was an hundred and thirty shekels, one silver bowl of 70 shekels after the shekel of the sanctuary. Both of them were full of fine flour mingled with oil for a meat offering. One spoon of 10 shekels of gold full of incense, one young bullock, one ram, one lamb of the first year for a burnt offering, one kid of the goats for a sin offering, and for a sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five he-goats, five lambs of the first year. This was the offering of Nashon, the son of Aminadab. And then it goes on and basically says the same thing for the second person for the second day and so forth for all 12. And what I want to focus on here, what I want to zoom in on is the weights of the gold and silver that was given. Okay, these were the, this was the permanent stuff. Okay, there were also the animals that were given, but the permanent gifts were the, the silver charger of 130 shekels and the silver bowl of 70 shekels. So right there, that's 200 shekels of silver. And that's a measure of weight. So 200 units of weight. And both of them were, uh, yeah, full of fine flour. Okay, and then one spoon of 10 shekels of gold. Okay, so you had 200 shekels worth of silver and 10 shekels worth of gold. So that's 210 shekels of weight of money altogether that was used or kept and uh, as assets for use in the sanctuary for the preparation of the uh, foods that were offered on the altar. Okay, so now you've got 210 shekels times 12 princes, each giving the same amounts. So 212, I'm sorry, 210 times 12 is 2,520. That's the same weight that was summed up in the many, many tekel uparsin. So when Daniel saw the handwriting on the wall, when he saw a monetary weight adding up 
to a weight of 2,520, he immediately knew that God was referring back to the dedication of the sanctuary and to the vessels of gold and silver that had a weight adding up to 2,520 shekels. And those very vessels were right there at that party being desecrated by King Belshazzar and his princes. They were eating and drinking out of the gold and silver vessels from the sanctuary of God. And so you see how human Daniel really was. He didn't just know these things, oh, because he was a prophet. He knew them because he studied the word of God and he understood what God was saying through the handwriting on the wall. I think it's really nice to see that human aspect to the prophets of God. But to the point today, when we see France falling as a sort of omen for the fall of modern-day mystical Babylon, it harkens back to the fall of Babylon that was connected to the economy of the sanctuary system, and particularly to its dedication offering that was desecrated by Belshazzar. But that's not all. The 2,520 also shows up in another context in the Bible, and we'll come to that soon. But first, let's read Daniel's answer to King Belshazzar regarding the handwriting on the wall. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let thy gifts be to thyself, and give thy rewards to another. Yet I will read the writing unto the king, and make known to him the interpretation. O thou king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar thy father a kingdom, and majesty, and glory, and honor. And for the majesty that he gave him, all people, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he slew, and whom he would, he kept alive, and whom he would, he set up, and whom he would, he put down. But when his heart was lifted up, and his mind hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne, and they took his glory from him. And he was driven from the sons of men, and his heart was made like the beasts, and his dwelling was with the wild asses. They fed him with grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till he knew that the Most High God ruled in the kingdom of men, and that he appointeth over it whomsoever he will. So that's referring to the story earlier in the book of Daniel, where King Nebuchadnezzar apparently lost his mind, and he, he, he went crazy simply because he had taken pride in this great kingdom of Babylon that he had built. And because of that, God struck him with insanity. And he basically became like an animal, as it describes here in verse 22. And thou, his son, O Belshazzar, hast not humbled thine heart, though thou knewest all this, but hast lifted up thyself against the Lord of heaven. And they have brought the vessels of the house before thee, and thou and thy lords, thy wives and thy concubines, have drunk wine in them, and thou hast praised the gods of silver and gold and brass, iron, wood, and stone, which see not, nor hear, nor know, and the God in whose hand thy breath is, and whose are thy ways, thou hast not glorified. So here we're brought to recognize that Belshazzar, rather than worshipping God, had worshipped the financial system, the gold, the brass, the iron, the wood, the stone. These are mostly the same symbols of money that were in the 
dream that Nebuchadnezzar had had about the image with the addition of wood, which was also a thing of value and was used for making idols as well as for construction. So, But the point is that he makes reference to this period of time during which Nebuchadnezzar had a, a bout of insanity. And that was a period of seven years during which Daniel stood in the gap and maintained the kingdom on behalf of King Nebuchadnezzar until his mind returned and he then gave glory to the God of heaven. And this is all recorded in the book of Daniel. This story is actually in Daniel chapter 4. And I'll just read one verse, verse 16, where it says that this is in a, in a dream where it was told to Nebuchadnezzar what was going to befall him with this insanity. And it says, let his heart be changed from man's and let a beast's heart be given unto him and let seven times pass over him. And so a couple of things here. First of all, when it speaks of his heart, it, it really means his mind in sort of the ancient Jewish thinking. The heart was the mind. It was it was uh, your thinking, your who you are, more so than the organ that pumps blood as we know it today. So let his heart or his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given unto him. In other words, he, he went crazy. He, he lost his mind. And it's interesting in the context of comparing this with the book of Revelation that his heart was changed into a beast's heart. And there in Revelation, we have a lot of references to the beast, you know, the, you know, the mark of the beast and, the, you know, the system of the beast and all this. And so it could be there's a hint there as to, you know, what type of thinking this is referring to in the prophetic sense, looking at this story as having an application to the end of time. But the real key in this verse is where it says, and let seven times pass over him. And in the ancient language, a time represented the one, one year, one cycle of the sun, or, or one day, one cycle of the sun. That was one time. And so when it says, let seven times pass over him, that could either be seven days or seven years. And in this case, obviously, it was meant as seven years. So seven years would pass during which he would be insane. And all this was known, and Daniel understood it and explained it to him. And because this was understood, Daniel was able to hold the kingdom on Nebuchadnezzar's behalf. And everything uh, was kept operating and running smoothly until his mind returned to him. And you can read the rest of the story there, but the seven times is a special number, and that goes back to another prophecy from the time of Moses. And that number, seven times, is a special number. It comes up many times in the Bible, but specifically in the context of Daniel, he knew that it was a reference to what Moses had written in the book of Leviticus. And so once again, we're taken back to the time of Moses. And in particular, it's in Leviticus chapter 26. And seven times is mentioned in four different verses. And this whole 
passage is talking about what God would do if Israel did not follow his instructions. And it says, if ye will not, this is verse 18, and if ye will not for all this hearken unto me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. And then again in verse 21, and if ye will walk contrary unto me and will not hearken unto me, I will bring seven times more plagues upon you according to your sins. Again in verse 24, then will I also walk contrary unto you and will punish you yet seven times for your sins. And finally in verse 28, then I will walk contrary unto you also in fury, and I, even I, will chastise you seven times for your sins. So here we have an expression, and if you read the whole chapter, you'll really see how strong this punishment is against Israel of this of, of seven times that would be a time of really severe punishment of trouble for Israel if they would not follow God's ways. And this was a time of trouble for them, simply put. And this was a prophesied judgment, a prophesied time of trouble, so to you know, so to speak, of seven years that was defined by God as a, a pre set punishment that would be the result if they would not follow his ways. Now, it's written in the sort of, you know, the Old Testament way of that things are expressed as, you know, God will do this, like that he will actively punish them. And that's not meant, I believe, to really describe God as being sort of angry and vindictive, but it's more an expression of that is the inevitable reality of what will happen if they do not follow his ways. And so it's more an expression of justice, an expression of consequence of what happens when you suffer the results of your own choices. And that's what that's the kind of justice that Bitcoin brings to all aspects of the world through its financial properties. It brings justice, and that means partly that you're punished, so to speak, for the wrong choices you make in the financial sense. And so, but the point here is that Daniel also understood this punishment, and he, being one who was himself a recipient of God's judgments in the way that Israel was taken captive into Babylon. He certainly gave a lot of thought to this, and you can read about his prayer of repentance after the 70 years of captivity had passed. And surely, being who he was, he understood these verses and that these seven times we're referring to a period of punishment. And in particular, Daniel pulled the story of Nebuchadnezzar's insanity for seven years into the situation with the 2520 when he saw the handwriting on the wall because it so happens that if you take seven years and each year in the Hebrew prophetic way of counting uh, being counted as 360 days, then 360 times 7 actually comes out to that very number of 2,520. And so when Daniel saw that number written on the wall by the mysterious hand sent from God, he knew immediately that it had to do 
with Israel's punishment. And in this case, it wasn't Israel that was going to be punished, but not only did this chapter in Leviticus describe the punishment for Israel if Israel would not obey God, but it also said that the punishment would be turned back onto Israel's enemies if they would repent after being punished. And so, having been in captivity for 70 years, and Daniel personally having repented and interceded with God at the end of those 70 years, he recognized that God was by the handwriting on the wall turning the judgment back onto the enemies of Israel. And therefore, he knew that Belshazzar's kingdom had come to its end. I don't know about you, but these are just amazing things to me. And to see how that relates to what's happening in the world today with the financial system and with Bitcoin coming on the scene, it's really, really fascinating. And so the question for us today, when we look at how this is playing out, is have I repented? Have you repented? Have you turned away Are you still worshiping the gods of gold and silver and bronze and all these things that represent the world's monetary system, the coming global digital currency that's going to be part of this new global digital compact? Or maybe it won't be a single global digital currency, probably won't. But when all of the CDBCs are tied in with the digital identity into this global digital initiative... Will you be worshiping that system? Will you be signing up for your CDBC bank account or your FedNow bank account or whatever it turns out to be in your country? Will you be worshiping the beast system that requires your obedience in order for you to be able to buy and sell? Or will you be dedicating your wealth like the 12 tribes of Israel to God and trusting in his provisions through the sanctuary system and the economy of the sanctuary, which serves the purpose to uplift and refine the character into something that's suitable for eternal life in the kingdom of God? Will you be storing your wealth and your energy and activity in the form of Bitcoin and thereby maintain your freedom and pseudonymity? so as not to be constrained by the powers of the world that want to control what you say, what you think, what you do, what, you know, every aspect of life. These are important questions, and these are things that have been on my heart as I've been seeing what has transpired this week and comparing what the Bible says about these things. And so I think we've covered a lot, and that was a pretty extensive and I think a very important analysis of some of the key aspects of the sanctuary system, how it is all connected to the end of time and to the things that are transpiring in the world as we speak. And so I think we'll leave it right there and close out this episode. I just want to ask, you know, what are your thoughts? Do you think that Bitcoin has a role in the Bible and in the last battle that's taking place between the world and the kingdom of God, I encourage you to subscribe to this channel, to share it with your friends, and to share these individual episodes with people who you think will be interested in them. 
and go back and listen to the ones that you haven't heard yet, because I think the topics that we cover are very important and relevant and will stay so. And also, I just want to remind you to search for Bitcoin Sermons in Noster as well and follow me there so that you can see things that I post there on a daily basis. And just a quick shout out to whoever sent in the 21 sats. I really appreciate that, especially in light of last week's episode about the 21 million Bitcoins. That's, uh, you know, just a beautiful number. And, you know, just kind of for everyone, I do this podcast just because I want to, because my heart overflows with these topics. But when you send in even just a few sats like that, or acknowledge or comment, those things really are an encouragement and lets me know that what I'm doing is being a blessing to others. So I really appreciate that very much. And I just want to shout out especially to my two new subscribers on my Substack where this podcast is hosted. And I hope that this episode finds you well and that it is a blessing to you as well. I really appreciate your subscriptions that help me get off the ground here at the beginning of this effort. Well, God bless you. And until next time, stay sane in this crazy world.